This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of February 17, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 120 of Defender Radio. This week we're focusing on predators with two internationally recognized scientists, Dr. John Landre of Oswego University in New York and Dr. Ewan Ritchie of Deakin University in Australia. Between these two professors, the case for protecting predators, not just at home, but around the world, will be made clear and our listeners will learn what they can do to help. Before we get started, we're going to update you on our first advertising campaign of 2014. Defender Radio News Doc, an orphan coyote in British Columbia, is the poster boy for our Meet the Face of Fur Trim campaign, now live on the internet and hitting bars, restaurants, and campuses in Toronto. The story of Doc is inspiring. He was found at around nine weeks old by a young boy and taken to Critter Care Wildlife Society, where he was reared with other coyote pups and eventually released into the wild. But the story of Doc is also frightening. He could well become the victim of a cruel leg hold, conibear, snare, or body gripping trap. Every day, coyotes and other fur bearing animals across Canada are brutally killed for their fur, which is most often used simply for fur trim. This is nothing more than a fashion accessory. Fur is not necessary. By sharing the story of Doc with an estimated 1.1 million Canadians, we believe the truth about fur trim will be realized. And with education comes compassion. With compassion comes change. To find out more about our campaigns, visit FurBearDefenders.com. Defender Radio News We know that protecting wildlife is important. We know that predators are of particular importance in protecting entire ecosystems. Yet governments are not acting on this knowledge. Now, an international cartel of scientists have published a paper that shows just how imperative it is that we protect predators. Dr. Ewan Ritchie of Deakin University in Australia was one of the co-authors on the paper, Status and Ecological Effects of the World's Largest Carnivores, that was recently published in the popular journal Science. He joins us now to discuss the paper and what it means for the future of predators. Can you tell us a bit more about the study itself? What were you looking at and what was the methodology? Yeah, so I guess what we did was we looked at the 31 largest carnivores um, right around the world. So, And that's on land, so that doesn't include seals and things like that. And that's any carnivore over 15 kilograms. And what we did was look at um, their distribution around the world and see how much they decline by. Um, so, you know, how, how much of their area is left in terms of where they used to occur. So what's their conservation status according to the IUCN? Um, and we also then examined, I guess, where we have information, what the ecological role of these species are. So obviously you're aware that, you know, <clears throat> the vast majority of these species, so 75% of these species are declining. And so the question, of course, is, well, if they are declining, what's the consequence of that? What would you, at this point, say the potential consequences are? Yeah, well, there's a lot, <laughs> the short answer. So um, there's a whole range of things that happen. I mean, and... I guess the sort of take-home message is that wherever we've looked, where a top predator or a top carnivore, if you like, has declined, there's been a dramatic effect on the ecosystem that it occurs in. So a couple of the typical things that happen is that 
when you lose a top carnivore, um, <clears throat> you get a lot more herbivores in that same system. So you can think about things like elk, of course, in Yellowstone increasing dramatically in the absence of wolves and that having a big effect on vegetation. But we also see similar things like that in Australia with dingoes. So wherever you lose dingoes, you get a lot more kangaroos, you get a lot more wild pigs, that's feral pigs, not actually boar. Um, wild goats, feral goats, um, and they have big impacts on vegetation. The other really interesting one is actually the release, um, what's called mesopredator release. That just means smaller predators actually increasing in numbers when the top predator declines. And we see that as well. So if you look at Africa as an example, when you lose top predators like lions and leopards, we've seen a huge increase in things like baboons. Um, and that's had a whole range of impacts, including actually attacks on um, people's uh, um, plantations where they grow their food and children then having to stay home to help their parents actually defend their crops. So it has an impact on education. So that's really quite interesting. Um, in Europe, we've seen um, when we've lost lynx and wolves, we've seen increase in red foxes. And so, and when those smaller predators often increase, they actually eat a lot more of the other, even smaller species. So think about things like, you know, birds, um, small mammals like rodents, reptiles. So they're really vulnerable um, and you often see um, quite dramatic impacts on biodiversity. So, um, <clears throat> but if you look at, say, the marine system, with sea otters, um, you know, if you lose sea otters, you see more sea urchins and you see less seaweed. And that's really interesting because not only does that impact the fish species, but it actually has an Im impact on climate change because kelp forests grow rapidly and they can fix a lot of carbon. So by losing sea otters, we're actually um, making the impacts of climate change worse. In Canada, we've largely got wolves, cougars and lynx being our apex predators. But as a result... We have a number of coyotes, which are our mesopredators, spreading across the continent. The solution put forward by governments and lobbyists is to hunt the coyotes, but their numbers actually rebound even higher as a result of hunting. How do we find an answer to something like that when we have such a huge decline of apex predators ongoing? Yeah, look, that's a really good question, and we see exactly the same problem in Australia. So, um you know, uh, dingoes increase rapidly in numbers when you kill dingoes, and dingoes and coyotes are actually quite similar. I guess, you know, for the problem with killing things, one is that it's almost impossible to um, kill enough coyotes to actually keep their population down. So essentially you're basically wasting your money and not actually making the problem any better. Um, so, of course, top predators are generally better, so things like wolves in terms of controlling coyotes, because... Of course, not only do they kill coyotes, but coyotes actually avoid areas where wolves are. So they fear wolves and they avoid those areas. Um, of course, it's difficult, as you say, because no one wants to have wolves in their backyard necessarily, or certain some people don't. I wouldn't mind, but <laughs> some people don't want to have them in their backyard. Um, and so the question is, how do you actually sort of have them with people? And, you know, this is something that we've been struggling with right around the world, but there's a whole range of solutions that we're still not making very good use of. Um, you're probably aware, particularly in Europe, that, you know, people have been using uh, what's called guardian animals, or, um, so guardian dogs, livestock protection dogs, for, century, for centuries. Um, and they're really effective at actually protecting things like sheep against the attack of wolves. And yet they're not used um, nearly as much in, say, Australia or United States or probably Canada as well, no doubt. And so they could be used a lot more effectively. There's a lot better things we could do with husbandry of our animals too. So, you know, actually just bringing animals in when they're most vulnerable to attack. So I think 
Um, of course, fences are an option as well. So there's a whole range um, of solutions um, for actually maintaining predators in the landscape, but also minimising their impacts on humans at the same time. So I guess it's a matter of, I guess, governments actually prioritising that um, rather than, I guess, the traditional way of doing it, which is basically just to kill predators. So, yeah. We've seen in Yellowstone National Park the drastic and quick changes that reintroducing wolves brought. Is that something government should be looking at as an investment? Yeah, absolutely, because we now know that, you know, top predators deliver a whole range of ecosystem services that were unappreciated. So, of course, the carbon sequestration is one of them. Um, but, you know, pest management is another. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent around the world controlling things like rabbits, um, red foxes, um, feral cats, and it's often ineffective. But predators are doing these things 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they do them for free. Um, and they usually do them far more effectively than we do. So there's a whole um, you know, group of people, including people, of course, in this paper, that are really pushing for restoring top predators back to the landscape, not just because it's a nice idea, but also because it actually is a practical idea and actually provide managers a more long-term effective solution um, for maintaining ecosystems because, you know, essentially they're doing the role for us, the role that they've been doing for millennia, um, and they do it far more effectively than we ever can. So um, you probably heard about the idea of rewilding and people like George Monbiot have been promoting this um, and others, of course, as well. And so I think that's kind of the new frontier for conservation, and particularly in larger landscapes, you know, is to actually try and let nature take care of itself to a degree rather than constantly intervening and often making things worse. When we've got scientists like yourself, your colleagues, and many others who are starting to get more and more vocal about this message, what can average people do to get involved in promoting your work and the importance of it? Um, It's probably a little cliche, but I think it's about education and about talking to people. So I think, you know, we, we have the knowledge now about what predators do and how important they are. So I think it's about as much as anything, sharing that knowledge and, you know, whether it's about writing to your local politician and actually making them aware of why they maybe shouldn't kill sharks in Australia, as an example, um, but also just talking to your neighbour and saying, look, you know, do you realise this is what wolves do or this is what cougars do? I mean, I think we have to be um, balanced and accept, of course, there's there's costs that come with predators, but if you take, you know, um, a holistic view of, the, you know, the whole range of benefits as well, you know, and you weigh that all up, I think you'll find that overall we're far better off having predators um, in, in the community and landscapes than we are without them. So I think it's really just about getting the message out more and more and more. So whether that be on blogs, whether that be talking to your neighbour, I think it's just about spreading the word and education, you know, is, is you know, top of the list. Get more information about this study and Professor Ewan Ritchie by following the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. It's time now to hear from our friend, Brad Gates. Wild in the City with Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. It took you years to develop your methods, and they're now recognized as the best in humane wildlife removal. You've also played a strong role in advocating for better conditions for workers, wildlife, and consumers in your industry. Looking back to when you first started, do you think you'd believe that all of this would happen for you? No, not at all. Um... When I attended Guelph University, uh, I often dreamt about one day running my own business doing wildlife control. And I only ever imagined myself being a one-man operator. But over the years, slowly, um, I started to recognize 
that there was a growing demand for humane wildlife uh, control. And in order to, to fulfill that demand, I slowly started hiring other help. And it started with one truck, then two trucks, and today we're up to 10 trucks in our, in our service area. And as you get bigger and you have employees that, that need to be trained um, on all aspects, not only the wildlife removal, but on health and safety, then information gets shared more readily, um, not only, again, to your employees, but to customers. So uh, to answer your question, uh, no, I had, I had no idea that um, our business would take a leadership role in, in wildlife control. I'm, I'm so glad that uh, it has turned out that way because I think the industry um, is certainly better today uh, because of it. And um, I'm just, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm happy that I've had the opportunity to share our knowledge and uh, and save wildlife uh, lives uh, over the 30 years we've been in business. To find out more about Brad, visit GatesWildlifeControl.com. Wild in the City with Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in, your insulation is being ruined, and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. This is Defender Radio. Dr. John Londra of Oswego University in New York is one of America's leading experts on cougars. The wildlife biologist has written dozens of studies on cougars, their social structures, and their interactions with humans, and recently penned an essay for the Mountain Lion Foundation titled, Who Owns the Wildlife? Dr. Londra joins Defender Radio to discuss this subject and what it means for the future of cougars and other predators in North America. You're a wildlife biologist who specializes in cougars. Tell me a bit more about what you do. Okay, well, uh, a little bit about my background. I, um, I 
I grew up in the Midwest in in Wisconsin, and um, started going to the, to the to the university there, and then eventually got my um, got you know I was interested in wildlife because I came from a rural background, and so I drifted into into ecology and and eventually conservation biology. Um, I got my PhD in uh, out in Idaho, where I worked with with coyotes, which were my first, the first predators I worked with. And then from there, a variety of different positions. And, and in uh, 1986, I started working with, uh, with cougars in, in Idaho. And um, studied there for, well, for 16 years, uh, studying various aspects of their, their biology and ecology and, and their interaction with their, with their prey. Um, and that, that turned out to be, so far, Still, the the longest um, uh, study on on cougars to date. Uh, from there, uh, I started doing some work in Mexico, where I worked with a variety of different predators, uh, some uh, some with with cougars, uh, with bobcats, with coyotes, and also did some work with uh, the captive Mexican wolf um, population that the the institute that I worked for had. And so I, I've come from a you know, I have a long career in working with with carnivores, and specifically with um, well, with cougars is the major one, but I do have a lot of experience in others. Um, yeah, and that, that's, my, that, that's that's basically my background in terms of my um, how I got to where I am. Now I got to where I am is because we we moved up from Mexico in two thousand. 2008, uh, primarily for educational opportunities for my daughter, and um, and they offered a position to to my wife here at um, in upstate New York, and so that's where we are right now. In your essay, you ask the question: If hunters make up about five percent of Americans and 16 percent are against hunting, what about the 79 percent? How do we interpret that data? Well, we're interpreting that obviously uh, hunting. Well, even under the best of times, you figure not everyone not everyone hunted, uh, and if half of the population were females, which didn't hunt, uh, it's always been less than fifty percent of the population that hunted, even in colonial times. Um, the, it was at that, that time it was the, the market hunters that did the hunting, um, and so although we we look at in the U.S. we look at this hunting tradition um, as something that's that. Um, Seems to have been done by everyone. It really wasn't. It was done by by the, the people who, first of all, needed to, and then the person, the people who wanted to, and the people who could make money off of it. And um, moving into modern society, we obviously see that we need less and less um, reason to to hunt wildlife. The only thing that that keeps it going is this 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 idea of uh, of our hunting heritage. And few and few people buy into that. Um, I grew up as a hunter. I, I grew up on a farm, and, and we hunted, uh, and we ate what we hunted, and and um, and that's so. I have that particular model in my head. But um, in terms of whether or not we have to ask, you know, some pretty pointed questions nowadays in terms of do we really need to hunt? There's, I don't think there's anyone in the United States that would that would starve if they couldn't hunt. Um, you get up into Alaska, maybe with some of the obviously the, the indigenous uh, peoples up there, and then yeah. But in the lower 48, no, there's no 
need to hunt. Um, and so we hunt because we want to. And so we have to really look at why we want to do that. And, uh, and, and admittedly, a lot of them, a lot of people are trophy hunters. Uh, they, they, well, the whole, you know, the whole deer hunting, um, mystique is built around the, the big buck. In fact, a lot of people are looked down upon if they shoot does and, and fawns. Um, and so it's the, the rationale for hunting is harder and harder for more and more people to accept. It's not part of their lives. And so they, they don't participate in that. They do, uh, as I mentioned in that article, a lot of them still feel, I think, because of this, this heritage thing, feel that people have the right to hunt. And I'm not sure if we'd want to take that away in terms of, um, you know, a lot of wildlife pop, you know, hunt, being, being killed by a bullet is no different than being killed by a, a predator. And so I always say there's no, there's no retirement homes in the wild. So, you know, all animals have to die sometime. But it's, the, the problem we have is that we tend to look at our predation as being uh, paramount, as being the most important um, level or type of predation on these populations. And it's not. We don't. We're, we're not needed ecologically, um, and we can't do it ecologically. We don't. We don't. Um, we have hunting laws to prevent us, ourselves from doing that. And so I think what happens now is is we have a society where uh, very few people hunt. Um, some people are are indeed against it. They think uh, on all levels it's wrong, but a large portion of people it really doesn't impact. They feel it really doesn't impact their lives, um, and so they're they tend to look at it in terms of uh, the hunting issue is, um, is something that, yeah, it's, it's okay. Uh, but they don't really look into it too much. But ironically, when you look at it in terms of, uh, if you take away the hunting, you ask, well, how many people are interested in wildlife? Well, then, then we're talking almost a majority of the population. On one level or another, we, we all have some interest in, in some aspect of wildlife. And so there's that dichotomy there. The, the, we have different uses of wildlife, and hunting is just one of those uses and a very minor one. We often will talk about the belief that hunters and trappers are needed to control wildlife. How do you respond to that concept? Well, all we have to do is look at the, at the protected areas, the national parks, and, and realize that that's a pretty hollow argument. Uh, these, are, these areas, Isle Royale is a prime example. There, it's uh, a fairly stable system. It's got a predator. It's got its prey. Uh, the national parks. Um, before we return, return the the wolf. Yes, there were problems simply because we we had eliminated uh, a major predator. We brought it back, and things are things are stabilizing. Uh, the Serengeti of Africa worked perfectly without without uh, human hunting. The, the level of of hunting at at um, the native peoples of Africa did was fairly minimal. Um, many of them were, were agriculturally based. Um, and so we, it's just the opposite. What we find is that the systems where humans don't interfere are usually the, the better managed ones than where, a system, than where we try to manage these systems. And so, like I say, that, that, that argument just doesn't hold water anymore. One of the other subjects you get into is the amount of money spent by hunters compared to the people who experience outdoors, bird watchers, hikers, photographers, and so on. Is that argument that hunters are spending a lot of money, and that's why they should be listened to, therefore dead in the water? 
it should be. I mean, these, these hunters get up and they say, well, yeah, we, we, you know, we spend millions and billions of dollars supporting wildlife. And you go, well, yeah, that's, but that's only a small, let's say, you know, one-tenth of what everyone else spends. Um, and so what's, what's your point? You know, we have uh, a, a lot more money coming in to support wildlife from, from non-hunters. And so it's the, and, and in, indeed, what this brings up a, a critical point is that the, the non-hunting wildlife enthusiasts depend more upon ecosystem integrity than the hunters do. Hunters would be, and they are happy with game farms. I mean, look at all of the increases in the number of uh, you pay, you shoot uh, operations that are springing up, I suspect, even in Canada, where, you know, a rancher, instead of ranching cows, he ranches deer or elk, and, and people come in to, to shoot them. Um, they have no, no, and so they manage them like ranches. They get rid of all the rest of the wildlife. Um, where's the ecosystem integrity in there? The, the wildlife watchers um, pay more, and they have a much more diverse interest in the number of different species they like to see. And so just by, by default, they're, they're more concerned with ecosystem integrity than, than hunters are. And so, the, like I say, it's, I, every time I, I hear them say, well, we, we, we pay so much, and, and, and people repeat that, and it's, yeah, they do, but it's still a drop in the bucket compared to what everyone else pays. Even, like, like here, like I mentioned in my article, just the federal budget alone to support national parks, the wildlife service, the, uh, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, the forestry, all of that, that can be counted toward the same way, counted toward habitat protection as these hunters want their near measly millions of dollars counted toward. What they pay is a fraction of what is actually spent providing habitat and for wildlife in this country. And so, yeah, it, it should die, but it doesn't. The management of wildlife for hunters is primarily looking at game species. There are likely more people hunting game species than predators. Some of the groups do a lot of good work. They spend a lot of money building ecosystems back to what they should be, but they're focused on ducks or deer. Why is it important to understand that their focus is not full biodiversity, and what is the fallout of it? Okay. The, the first of all, I I agree with you. I, I think we can't we we don't we shouldn't diminish what a lot of these. A lot of these efforts are from the from the hunting segment, um, but again, it's relatively small compared to all of the different activities that are being funded by by the general public. Um, in terms of many of these efforts, you know, we can point to rebuilding a marsh, and and they do that. They say, look, at, we're rebuilding this marsh, and um, and because we want ducks back. But what they don't don't tell you is then uh, if there's all of a sudden with with predators like skunks. Uh, eating duck eggs and or foxes or coyotes um, eating um, ducklings, or even big big fish in the in the water eating them. What they don't tell you is that hidden in there is 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 all that predator control that that is usually um, disguised from the from the general public. Here, the wildlife services does it, um, or other agencies. The the open season on all of these predators does it. And the, and the reason we have, if you look for the the, the rationale for, for an endless season on such things as foxes, coyotes, um, all of these different animals, uh, these vermin that, that they tend to identify, it has um, 
it has to do with their impact on on game species. And so they're they're bringing back these these uh, even the best of situations. They're bringing back these these ecosystems, but they're deciding who who gets to live in them. And so when, once they do that, then it starts to diminish its its value as a as an ecological restoration. And those are the best ones. The other ones, I mean, we we look at um, look at, in in Idaho uh, with the return of the wolves. Uh, this just raised the rankles of, of uh, elk and deer hunters. And um, and Idaho was was planning on the, the fishing game department of Idaho was planning on paying a sharpshooter to go into a federal wilderness area to kill wolves. Why? So that there would be more elk. And so you go, all of these 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 conservation efforts by hunters are, are tainted with that that bias against what turns out to be one of the most major components of, of ecosystem integrity. And so, yeah, they, they range in terms of their value relative to ecosystem, ecosystem integrity, but there's that underlying... Uh, emphasis to to for um, single species or single group species management, and you don't you're not concerned with the the integrity of the ecosystem. You're concerned with production, and that's the bottom line. We want to produce these animals so that we can sh- we can kill them. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm in terms of uh, of any ethics or anything, but in terms of uh, focus for for ecosystem integrity, that tends to then um, change that focus and at the effect of, at the, the uh, cost of ecosystem integrity. Do you think that the importance of apex predators is being willfully ignored, or do you think there's a lack of education on the importance of allowing wolves, cougars, and other predators to remain in ecosystems? Well, I don't know if it's... An, um, it, I, don't know, I, I wouldn't want to put any um, reason for why they're, they're doing it, but they do... They, these groups... Do ignore the the, the science. Uh, they they still hold this attitude that predators kill our prey and so they're bad, uh, and and that's it. Uh, they they tend to talk well, yeah, okay, we can we can keep them on the landscape if you want, but um, obviously at at much at lower than ecologically effective levels. That is, they can be remnants, but they can't be participants in in ecosystem processes. Um, because of their participants in ecosystem processes, then um, obviously it's it's uh, potentially at the expense of the uh, of prey species that that hunters would like. Um, I say potentially because it, when we look at the, the the other prime example of, uh, of all of this is Isle Royale. It has one of the highest moose densities in the world, and it's not hunted. And so, but it has wolves. And so, when we we look at that, we can say, well, geez, you can you can have both. You can have some hunting by humans, and you can have a viable wolf population or viable predator populations. Um, and so, I think for them to get their message across to their constituents, they have to talk more game in the bag, because that's what the hunters understand. They don't want to take their thousands of dollars of equipment out in the field and come back empty-handed. The, the hunting industry won't allow that. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is our, our hunting industry. It's, it's obviously a multi-million, maybe multi-billion dollar industry that's geared toward um, success. 
because they can't sell this equipment if people don't come back from the field successful. And so you can't keep that industry going by arguing ecosystem integrity. And so it's, and you can't, it's the whole thing of, of you have to pick a button issue. And the button issue here is, well, predators kill our prey and thus they're bad. We don't want to, we, we don't want to complicate that, that button issue by talking about such things as ecosystem integrity and how, how predators are, are essential to the, to that in terms of, fun, of ecosystems. And I think, I think a lot of, well, they, they've been exposed to the, to the, to the science, but they just don't accept it because it doesn't fit their part, their paradigm. You advocate for the rewilding of cougars, and I would imagine many other predatory species as well. What happens if we don't start looking at true biodiversity and fully integrated ecosystems, and we don't allow these predators to return to their proper roles in the wild? Well, I think the appropriate question is what happens if we don't, is what is happening, because we haven't. And it is happening. Uh, uh, article after article, scientific article after scientific article keeps coming out about how the how in the in the eastern forest the deer are just um, are bringing ecosystem processes to a standstill. Uh, they're eating up the the seedlings, and so we're not we don't see uh, regermination of the forest occurring. Uh, even in the commercial areas, they, they complain. They they put these trees out, and the deer eat them. And so that it's it actually becomes an economic concern to them that they can't um, reforest these areas to. Uh, so that they could eventually harvest them again, and so what we're we're seeing across the ecosystem in the east, with the lack of of both wolves and cougars, is is that it's um, ecosystem deterioration. It's happening, and it's and it's beginning to have major effects on a variety of different aspects. <laughs> One of the things that that I find interesting is that um, the ginseng industry uh, in the south southeast is suffering. Simply because the deer get to get to the ginseng before before the people do, and and ginseng is a you know it's a one of those herbs that's that's supposedly a cure all for a bunch of stuff, and um, and so it, we're seeing these impacts already. How far it will go? Um, one cast asked the question, what will happen if if the uh, wind trees die and that there aren't trees to replace them? You know what what will the forest look like as these as these forests age? The other thing we're seeing is a major loss in in a variety of different um, um, forest species. There was a big concern about migratory birds, and we were pointing fingers to the south, and the south was pointing fingers to us um, in terms of who was responsible for decline in um, many of these songbirds. Well, if we if we look at what's happening to the forest understory because of the presence of deer, many of these are ground nesting birds. They have no cover, and they disappear. My guess is that. Uh, the, the New England cottontail, which is an endangered, or threatened or endangered now uh, in New England, is suffering simply because of that. There's not enough underground cover being established uh, by the um, because the deer are keeping these areas barren of, of this undergrowth, and so they have no place to hide and, and no place to raise their young. The other thing is inv- invasive species. We're seeing all kinds of invasive species taking over um, simply because. They're the ones that the deer don't eat, and so I think it's it's in, we're seeing it happen before our very eyes now, and that's why we we feel that it's it's critical to get the message out that indeed we we do need to rewild the east. There's room for them, um, and for the 
for the integrity of the, the ecosystem. We need to, to really look into bringing these animals back. To find out more about Dr. Landre, follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. That's the show for this week. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support, as well as our guests for taking the time to join us for this week's episode. To learn more about any of the experts you heard today, check out the Defender Radio blog at furbeardefenders.com. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.